Hey everyone. First off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're producing this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Ian Pollock, your familiar stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I'm talking to Tiffany Kane, a PhD student in archaeology at the University of Pennsylvania. We caught up at the AAA meeting in San Jose last November on the lands of the Ohlone people. Tiffany's methods, to me, were almost unrecognizable. Now, here in Australia, anthropology is anthropology, but in America, it's a much bigger umbrella topic, covering the four fields of cultural anthropology, linguistics, physical or bioanth, and archaeology. Tiffany is part of a big, multi-person, multi-year, multidisciplinary team a far cry from the kind of lone ethnographer model that I'm familiar with. Her archaeology is participatory, responding to local interests and local demands, and her team is embedded in local institutions and in some small-scale local politics, especially the politics of heritage. Now, the site is the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, where she's specifically looking at the Maya caste war, a conflict that took place around Mexican independence in the 19th century. But more than that, the real focus is what that history can mean for the people who live with it today. So, unpacking all this, we talk about the practical side of working in a big research team, doing research that's of benefit to the community you're working in, and the difference between history and heritage. So, here it is, my conversation with Tiffany Kane. So I guess one of the things that I'm curious about knowing from you is in Australia, anthropology is not for field. You are a historical archaeologist, or how do you? How, what kind of labels do you use yeah, for the work uh, that you do? I always, first and foremost, think of myself as an anthropologist. In some spheres, I wear a historical archaeology hat. My personal work has always focused on the colonial and post-colonial periods. That for me has been very, very important, and that's sort of where I find my drive to be an archaeologist, like, to have relevance, right? Like, I can contribute to the kinds of conversations that I grew up having through archaeology. And so in that respect, yeah, historical archaeologist. But always, first and foremost, anthropologist, I think. Just in terms of what it means to be a historical anthropologist, a, a historical archaeologist as opposed to an archaeologist, what, what does that mean? You're working in the historical period? You're not, like, reaching back to preliterate? No or non-literate, not even pre, just non-literate spaces, right. right? But, yeah, I think it has a couple of key components. The incorporation of, of text is obviously important, but to go beyond that, it's also a concern for this particular moment in history, right, where <clears throat> European expansionism, processes, and systems of colonialism and imperialism, um, in their modern sense, are really beginning to be deployed and creating new kinds of connections across the world, and therefore new kinds of exchange in material, the adoption and the creation of new forms of um, material culture 
that then have reverberations in social life, right? This sounds like you're bringing so many different disciplines together, right? You're talking about history, you're talking about art history, you're talking about archaeology, you're talking about anthropology. Uh, do you work with a big team of people or do you synthesize all that by yourself? The team of people that I work with are on the one side, uh, primarily affiliates of the Penn Cultural Heritage Center, my advisor, Richard Leventhal, and a colleague, Casey Dizrens-Morgan, another colleague who's actually in the education program, Aldo Ansores Tapia. It's really just the four of us. And then as well as a lot of folks who come in on a shorter term project basis. So the remainder of that work is being done at the community level. A really important component of, of our project has been to work very deeply with the community that we're based in on the kinds of questions that they have about the past, about heritage, about collective identity in that space. And so a lot of that labor is being done by them around things, you know, they're already organizing around certain issues. And we're able to help facilitate some of that. But the majority of those research questions and the many things that you know, you know, that we've been doing have been joint efforts between the couple of us that are on this project and sort of take responsibility, primary responsibility for different aspects of it. And the folks on the ground in, in the town that we're working in, in Teosuko, it's called. So, Tell me about this community where you guys are working. Yeah, sure. So it's called Teosuko. That's T-I-H-O-S-U-C-O, Tihosuko. Okay. Um, the H is pronounced, which I think is unique for that area. It's uh, located in Quintana Roo, Mexico. That's in the Yucatan Peninsula. It's in the Yucatan Peninsula, yeah. So Teosuco was actually the epicenter of the caste war of Yucatan, which was a 19th century insurrection that became a paramilitary action and devolved into various phases of guerrilla warfare. But it was basically between Yucatecan state officials and the, the Yucatecan military side, right? Post independence, post Spanish independence. And what uh, another historical archaeologist, Adam Keating, has called contra-colonial factions, predominantly Maya, but also involving a wide range of other actors in that space. So this is a really unfamiliar history for me as an American, but I think for our Australian listeners too. So just to, just to sort of sum up, if I can, basically, Mexico has become independent from Spain. Yes. And in that moment, it sounds like some indigenous groups take sort of seize the opportunity yeah. to fight for independence from Mexico. Exactly. And another layer on top of that, right? So not only is Mexico independent from Spain, but the Yucatan Peninsula is attempting to organize itself as its own republic in its own state, separate from Mexico. So it's a real moment of political ferment, isn't it? Very huge moment of unrest and of changing of hands. Right? And what's the date here? So the conflict, which is typically called the caste war of Yucatan, Sometimes the Maya Social War, the Maya Insurrection of 1847. So 1847, uh -huh. okay. And this has a, an interesting overlap, right, with the Mexican-American War, which is beginning right around that same period. And, and the Yucatecan officials are actually soliciting help from the United States. And there's really interesting issues of, of race that, you know, that graft on to really what we're looking at today, where U.S. officials are refusing help to Yucatecans because they don't replicate whiteness in the same way, right? And so Yucatan and the Yucatecan Republic, as it was, is fighting against its indigenous other that it's constructed, right? And 
believes itself to be the epitome of white civilization and is seeking help from the United States toward that end. I see. So this is not, (laughs) so this isn't like a straight up indigenous insurrection creating an indigenous state. This is like another settler colonial state trying to come into existence. Well, yeah. So, so Yucatan is another settler colonial state. So we think about it like the history of Texas and how Texas is constantly trying to secede or conversations around secession in Texas. Yucatan was the same thing for Mexico. Right. And then within Mexico, you have an indigenous uprising because post Spanish independence, right? The, the way of relating legally shifts from subjecthood to citizenship, right? So they're no longer subject, they're no longer subjects of the king. Exactly. They become citizens, they become citizens of, of Yucatan. Well, got it. in that space, citizenship is supposed to confer some sort of equal right, equal opportunity, equal access, all these things, right? And that fails to occur. So indigenous Yucatecans continue, Maya, you, you know, indigenous Maya folks continue to occupy this second class citizenship and it actually intensifies during this period. There's barring to particular rights that they had under subjecthood of Spain that are no longer as accessible and so unrest grows. And over that 20 year period between 1821 when, you know, this region becomes independent and uh, 1847, when the war outbreaks, sort of the unrest grows, the tension grows, so it, it intensifies so much that uh, we get what what becomes the caste war. All right. This is a deep and interesting history, but how do we do anthropology with people who are no longer alive? Yeah, I think a common misconception about archaeology is that we don't work with people who are alive. Okay. <laughs> so I think we'll start there, but also... Noting that within archaeology, there's also a debate about what the degree, what that degree of work should be, or that engagement should be, right, with the living communities within which we work, next to whom we work, hopefully with whom we work, right. And so, in the, in our case, we've taken a, a very, a very intentional model that looks at the capacity to really work side by side with people identifying heritage that's important to them, particular forms of history that are important to them, and, you know, working towards that goal. So what does that mean on the ground for us? That means that in Teosuko, we have very close partnerships with particular sort of representatives of that community that then facilitate a broader conversation with the sort of wider community, right? So Teosuko is a town of about 6,000 people. It's very difficult to run a project with 6,000 people, right? Yeah. So <laughs> just like with any other sort of functioning thing, there's going to be point people, there's going to be focus groups, right? And we really bring that to the work, but we're partnering with with sort of three key actors in that space. So the first is the local government, the mayor's office. Is that the lowest level of government? That's the lowest level of government there because Teosuko is actually a village of a municipal government, which is at Felipe Carrillo Puerto, south of it. Layers upon layers. Exactly. But you're coming in at the lowest level. We're coming in at the lowest level. Right. Okay. And so then, and, and within that space, there are even lower levels that we try to access, right? So each neighborhood in Teosuko yeah. has a representative, right? So we do, th- we work with, we think through things like that. The other really important organization that has been most important to the, the work that I have been primarily responsible for has been with the HIDO, which is a federally recognized representative land commune. It's a almost 
entirely Maya-identified community, right? Predominantly Maya-identified community. And within that space, people have the opportunity to uh, work particular plots of land, right? Contribute to communal and collective farming initiatives mm-hmm. and things like that. And are there limits on abilities on people's ability to buy and sell? Or yes, yeah. So, so buying and selling is pretty much prohibited. So there are loopholes where other ejidos have made the decision to privatize some of their lands. Mm-hmm. This is particularly a problem along the coast of Quintana Roo, which is where the Maya Riviera is. And it's obviously a huge international tourism yeah. locale. And so privatization, as you might imagine, is... A pressing issue, I uh-huh. think. Yeah. yeah. Pressing in hard. Very pressing. Teosuco is located much farther inland, and no one's really looking to build a huge hotel complex with right. access to the beach because that doesn't exist where we are, right? So I think this is what you would call participatory research. Is that right? Sure. Participatory yeah. archaeological research. So let's let's get back into the process of how you set that up. So you came to the lowest level of government, and then what happens next? Yeah, so in Teosuko, there's actually a small-scale museum uh, to the caste war already in operation there. They were a key, and when we started working there, they were key actors in the community in terms of um, using the space as a cultural center and promoting a lot of programming around the history of the town, the history of the region, Maya history, histories of resistance, right? So they were an obvious partner. So between them and the, and the mayor's office and the ejido, we sort of started positive and productive conversations, right? And from those, we've actually incorporated common methodology from ethnographic research, right? This sort of snowball method, right? So what do you mean? In snowball methodologies, right, you might have a great interlocutor with whom you've been working and they suggest another person who would be interested in talking to you and then oh, they sure. suggest another one, right? It yeah, that's like just this. how it goes. It's <laughs> just right. how it goes, right? Word of mouth, right? Well, the same thing was happening from this community heritage perspective because you know, we weren't the first people to show up in town wanting to do something. And we certainly were not the only people, or we're not working with the only people in town who have ever tried to do anything right. around community history and heritage. You know, Tizucanos were organizing around their history and their heritage for decades now, right? This isn't anything new. What is new, I think, is the kinds of connections that we were able to help facilitate between these sort of more small-scale groups, you know, whether it be school groups or, you know, one particular person in town who's, you know, a great family historian and, you know, has a small following of folks who work on things or, you know, someone who's into theater and does a lot of cultural reproductions or artisanry, right? We were able to facilitate connections between these groups that have led to, you know, you said participatory archaeology. That was certainly... A beginning, and that was certainly my inroad, but it's really become more of an umbrella heritage initiative, right? Um, that really thinks about what are the multiple methodologies and multiple ways of thinking about the past that are already in operation here that um, can be strengthened by being in conversation with other kinds of things, right? Right. So you were connecting different kinds of cultural actors and helping them to produce new things. How do you countenance that kind of intervention, which seems to me like it goes goes against a lot of kind of common ethnographic practice? I think there has been a tradition in in anthropology broadly 
where we like to be able to imagine ourselves outside of the communities within which we work, at least to a certain distance, right? And I think there is legitimacy to that. In many ways, we will always be outsiders to our communities unless we are working within our own communities. Right. Right. And even in that space, there becomes a distance because of the ethnographic process. But I think um, what has been pervasive among archaeologists in particular is a misrecognition of the kind of impact that you have by entering a community. What do you mean? Well, I think a lot of archaeologists sort of come in on a seasonal basis. They'll show up and say, okay, we're going to do this uh, excavation. Maybe it's attached to a field school. We're going to be here for six weeks. This is what we're paying for. We're paying for your labor. We're paying for these goods. We're paying for these services. And maybe we'll see you next year. And it's sort of gone. Mm, right? mm, mm. And that's an unfortunate pattern that we have allowed and continue to replicate. But I think to deny that we have real impact in the communities that we work in is, you know, to misrepresent ourselves as well. So yes, it is an intervention by bringing groups together, right? But I also think that in many ways it's a more, it's a more honest position because we're in a space where, where we recognize what our rules are as now members of the community and not in that sort of Oh, I live here and I, you know, I'm, I'm going native sort of way, right? We don't want to do that. We're not, that's not the conversation, but we are actors in this community now and we take an active part. And, and I think especially when you're dealing with questions of representation of the past, politics around the past, especially when you're dealing with not just the past, but a violent past, right? It's ethically irresponsible to not recognize your own position in that conversation and in that space. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily take sides, but I do think that it means that you act as a connector for conversations, if that's what's asked of you. But there are usually sides, right? Certainly. Have you encountered a lot of pushback or resistance to your intervention in these areas, or, your, or even just your presence there? Tiosuko has had a varied relationship with other archaeologists, with government officials, uh, with other researchers. You said this about other researchers coming in so often when I hear people mention other researchers, it's a horror story. Yeah. Like it's a reason, it's a reason, it's a reason why they needed to take an extra six months to win trust. I mean, was that, has that been your Absolutely. experience too? Absolutely. You know, I think something happened along the way in anthropology where we stopped feeling the need to commit in sort of long-term ways to the communities within which we work or with whom we work, right? Longer than a season uh-huh. or a year. Yeah. In some cases, that's appropriate still, right? Like, things happen very quickly, changes happen very quickly, especially in the ethnographic present, if you will, right? You know, and it may not be appropriate for long-term action, but I think in when you're dealing with communities who, who have continuously been disenfranchised by, lied to, you know, taken advantage of, oppressed by other groups, whether that be governance, whether that be within research, whether that be, you know, at a at a purely societal level, not committing to long term relationship building is a huge mistake. <laughs> right? I think we really have to be at the beginning, like, my showing up every year made a huge difference to what we've been able to achieve through this through this project. How many years have you been going back? I've been going down there now for six years. This is my sixth year going back and forth. 
I'm so jealous. I would love to keep spending more time where I did my research. I know, right? <laughs> and it's hard, and it's hard to let go. It's hard because you're writing about it all day back in your office or wherever wherever your home kind of writing site is. You're writing about it all day. Your head is still there. Yeah. It's hard to bring your heart home. It's really, really hard. It's really hard. And I think, you know, some some projects end up, you know, with a shorter term span for all kinds of reasons. What we as anthropologists have going on in our own lives, right? Totally what you know whether or not the relationships that we were able to build with the community were meant to last right i think there's a lot of things going on there but for me and for our project in general that sort of constant effort right like yes we know as researchers we really want to be here um, but that's really incumbent on your continuing to invite me like the, the moment when you stop inviting me something is broken there and that's gonna have to be sort of the, the end of that relationship, right? Because a lot of time has been put into making sure that you see me for who I am and I see you for who you are and we're able to come to a negotiation about something that's going to bring mutual benefit in this relationship, right? And it's a researcher relationship. And so to deny that, you know, there are many other aspects of the relationships I have. I've built deep friendships just like many of us do in our ethnographic research, right? But at the end of the day, like you just said, I come home and I write about this. Mm. And like there's some, there's that extra layer, that extra component there. And so I think for me, a commitment to, uh, building a relationship over the long term has then come, sort of swung back around for Tio Sukenos and it's like, okay, this person wants to be here. This person is committed to the vision that we've built together. And that, begins to open doors for other kinds of connections to be made. I didn't show up a facilitator. My advisor didn't show up a facilitator, right? That role was engendered by the fact that we had put in the time to build relationships where one group of folks might trust us with one thing and another group of folks might trust us with another thing. And we could say to both of them, you know, there's really an opportunity for some generative collaboration there. What can we do to move this idea forward. Can you say more about that, about what it means to be a facilitator? Yeah. So for instance, when I started working with the project, we really only had like two components of what we had envisioned as the project. The presence of this local museum there trying to make a difference in its community was really exciting. And so some of the focus early on was about museum development for that space. What can we help with? What what needs does the museum have that maybe the state isn't able to meet or choosing not to meet? Right. <clears throat> and then the other component was working deeply with the Ahito on some archaeological questions. Teosuko's Ahito is very large, and much of the land that it covers was at the heart of this conflict, the caste war. And so there are many sites across the area that they're responsible for that the Ahito had an interest in understanding those spaces better. So, and for several reasons, right? That becomes a resource that they can use in requesting funds from the government for conservation efforts or for tourism development, right? But there was also a sense that we have such a huge ajito, we have a large membership, but I 
have to make a living. So I go to my farm or I don't get to go to my farm and I have to go work in the hotel zone, right? Whatever the situation might be. But let's say I go to my farm, I go home. I go to my farm, I go home. Maybe my farm is located at one of these historic sites. Maybe it's a historic ranch. Maybe it's a, a, a former plantation. Maybe it's a abandoned town, right? Maybe it's in between those spaces along a historic road. But apart from this small corner of our lands that I work consistently, I may not actually have good knowledge of the rest of our lands because I have to make a living every day and I don't have time to go walk out over what I have a right to. Right, right. So the Yahidu saw this as an opportunity to get more of their members to do more exploration across the Yahidu and to bring together people's histories from each space. So a component, right, has been the collection of oral histories, both on the history of Teosuko itself and also on people's work in these other sorts of sites, these ex-haciendas, these ex-ranches, right? And it started to be sort of a force of knowledge collection. So we ended up with this amazing range of stories about folks resettling particular areas of this territory, right? Or about when the highway got when the highway got laid through the territory, right? These kinds of histories that folks were interested in collecting for their membership and also for the youth in town who are leaving because of the draw of the hotel zone along the coast, not coming back. So it was like what can we do that really shows everyone like how valuable this is? And it was difficult to do that because, you know, I did my former work. I was actually in Australia. My, my sort of entree. Really? Yeah, my sort of entree was in Western Australia. And I had someone that I was working with there say something that has always stuck with me, which was that history is way too big for any one person. But when... One person holds this portion of the story, and another person holds this portion of the story, and they meet, the story gets longer. Uh, you're describing a project with so many sites, right? It's got all of these dig sites. It's got all of these village institutions. It's got um, archives. As a team, how do you encompass that many sites? How do you divvy up the work? And then afterwards, how do you synthesize this? How does the writing work? Are you, are you all working on a single book together? Or like, what's the product afterwards? Yeah, process is, um, is tough. A lot of it has been learned as you go. <laughs> see what works. Uh-huh. See what sticks. Yeah. Right? Um, it's been fun because of that. Also a little intimidating in some ways, right? Because it is. It is, like you said, it's a lot to take on. Is everyone on the team, like, at the same... Are you all graduate students? No. So, obviously, there's my advisor. There's three of us who I sort of characterize at the beginning of our conversation as sort of permanent members of the team, right? Because we are the three graduate students from whom our primary dissertation work is linked to Teosugo in some way, right? But there are a, a few other folks who have cycled in and contributed in an enormous and important other ways throughout that space that have sort of helped balance out that, that work, right? But, yeah, the, the question of product has been one that we've been considering now for a long time. So there are some, I think, really exciting products that we have been able to do along the way. And I don't think that we've quite settled on like a, a big product yet. It might look like a book. It might not. Is it, it might look like a few books because of the way we have it divvied up, right? So I've been, my work has been primarily partnering most closely with the Ahito as sort of a sub project, right? I said it was an umbrella heritage project. 
because we think it's really important to maintain all of these things as one thing working towards characterizing and, and producing a heritage of Teosuko that is true to how Teosukenos put it forward, right? But it has sub-projects in order to achieve that. And so mine is sort of the archaeology sub-project, meaning that I work primarily in the jungle on a Hito lands, right? My colleague, Casey Dizzard Morgan, has then decided, okay, well, I'll work primarily on things that are happening in the town, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, she has a background in historic preservation. And so Teosuko has an incredible array of colonial era homes, that were also destroyed or, you know, abandoned during the war and have been resettled. Um, and folks live in them now, but there's a whole range of issues around resettling a space that was destroyed by war, right? And so she's been working really closely with folks on sort of in-town space, if you will. Do you guys go down at the same time? Often. We try to. We try to, but we're also trying to move them away from a model that is necessarily seasonal okay so we also will have people there at various points throughout the work the year right we try to be there all at one time at least once a year to give some sort of continuity and i think presence to the project right but it's not enough to just show up and leave right that's very much so that that sort of older model and even if you continue to come back every year it's not ideal at least not for the breadth of what we're trying to achieve there and so yeah people will come down every year. And then the other student, uh, he, he has a background in educational linguistics. And so he's actually been working in the preschools, doing some really incredible work there, and has partnered with the staff at the museum that I mentioned, uh, to do a lot of work around language reclamation. And so one of the products, right, that we've been able to produce has been this amazing series of well, I think they're amazing anyway. <laughs> I mean, not too darn, but I think they, they came out so well, right, of, of bilingual comic books produced in Spanish and Maya, right? That is are, Maya the local language? Maya or is the local language. Of that or? Yucatec Maya is the, is the local language. Yucatec Maya. That are also focused on the leaders of the caste war, right? So you have the history component there and you also have this language reclamation component, which I think is just so great. Another thing that we, we just produced this past year uh, was the first, hopefully first, volume of a small booklet that took up the oral history project run by a close friend and, and colleague in town, Marcelina Chan Canche, who is a linguist by trade. She has been running an oral histories program with through us for a long time now, for about as long as I've been there, I guess. And one of the other sub-programs has been thinking about, like, can we maybe start helping to lay the foundation for a, a community-based archive in Teosuko? And so that's been sort of a parallel to this oral histories work, right? So we have these great photographs that we've been helping to digitize that are of the history of Teosuko since resettlement, along with these oral histories. So what we did was we brought them together in a, the first volume of a booklet, and it presents a history of Teosuko, a photographic history of Teosuko, if you will, and sort of gives some of the great photographs that families have contributed um, alongside their oral histories that we were able to distribute in the community this past summer. So that's sort of the groundwork. In the long term, I think there are several sorts of projects that we would love to see come out. I mean, we would love to see books come out of it. I would love to see, you know, something done in the documentary or film sort of space, you know, ethnographic film hmm. space. I think yeah, is anybody, is anybody shooting down there? Is shooting Not film? Not yet. 
Okay. So here's a call. <laughs> right? Not yet. Audio too. Um, I'm going to throw out a call for audio as well. <laughs> like, I think there's a lot of opportunities because I'm not coming in and saying, you know what, we're going to do archaeology and that's what I'm focused on and you guys mind doing these other things and that's really cool, but I'm not dealing with that, right? Just the, the process of being open to has made a huge difference and allowed all of these things to, I think, sort of proliferate from what our, our initial intentions or certainly our on-roads were, right? Just I think if anyone is interested in doing a project like this, I think the first thing is just remaining open to things that you're not comfortable with. I'm not a linguistic anthropologist, although I like to think I know a thing or two about it, right? Um, I like to dabble in it, but I'm not. that's not my primary space. But I know people who know how to do that work. And so when we started working, it was like, well, oh, man, this stuff that we're doing around the history, this is amazing. But if we're going to do this, the most important thing to us is the language. What, what can you help us do with the language? Right. And so bringing in another student who can contribute to that uh, was a big was a big part of it. And the same thing happened with Casey's project with the colonial houses. Right. Well, we always wanted to understand the history of these houses better. Do you know anybody who knows anything about this kind of work? Bring her in. See, this is interesting to me because the kind of anthropological fieldwork that I'm used to is the kind where one person goes by themselves to another place where they don't know anybody. And then they come back and they do that. I do this. I confess. I refer to it as my field site. Is there no element of toe-stepping? Is there no jealousy? Is there any... <laughs> do people feel protective of this site at all or of the knowledge that they're building there? Yeah. Yeah, I think, of course, to a certain degree, right? You, like I said, you put in a lot of work in terms of building strong relationships, keeping open channels of communication, right? And making sure that your aims are, at least in some way, aligned with uh, the aims of the community that you're working with, right? And that creates, I think, a certain sense of, you know, homeness that I think is replicated in the notion my site. I don't think we ever really talk about it that way, but I think there's something, you know, that's that's my space. Like, you know, that that's, I belong there in some way, even if it's me saying I belong there and not anyone claiming me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think we do that. And I think, yeah, there is sometimes toe-stepping. Now, historical archaeology continues to be marginalized in, in the Maya region. Maya archaeology is a very big discipline and has done amazing work in archaeology, really pushing archaeology forward. But there has been sort of a, a gap in in focus on the post-conquest. Right, it's just looking spaces, at the Tulums right? and Chichen Itzas of the world, exactly. right? Um, and so that space remains wide open, and there's not a whole lot of people <laughs> really concerned with 18th and 19th century sites that I'm interested in, right? So which one of these time periods contributes more to Maya politics today? Are people's sense of their identities in the community where you are? That's a great question, and I think one of the reasons that we were able to start working in this space is because of an experience that, that my advisor, Dr. Richard Leventhal, had, right, where he often recounts it as, you know, not to put words in his mouth, but he often recounts it as um, having had conversations with folks that he was working with on, in Belize and wanting to open a conversation about heritage with them and talk about heritage with them. And they're saying, well, this is all very interesting, but actually, like, I'm from the, you know, my family's from Yucatan. Like, we just got here a hundred years ago when we were running as refugees from this war, right? 
which is a whole other set of very interesting questions. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's funny um, sometimes. I mean, encountering indigenous people in a place doesn't necessarily mean that they are indigenous to that place exactly. where you found them. Exactly. And so that sort of moved his interest into the Yucatan, which opened the door for me to join that space, right? There's not a whole lot of uh, principal interest, right? There's peripheral interest. There's not a lot of principal interest. But from the opposite end, when you get to Teosuko, the caste war is a huge part of the conversation about collective identity in that space. And the sort of ancient Maya stuff really doesn't have as much saliency. I mean, it's not just the caste war, right? It might not be the caste war proper. So maybe not everyone in Teosuko is really up on their caste war history, right? But there is a, a very important awareness that Teosuko as it exists now only exists because of the caste war because there was an opportunity for resettlement, an opportunity to take advantage of the agrarian reform, an opportunity to um, move back into this space that had been for so long unavailable, right? So we're nearly out of time, but I've got one more kind of big question that I want to ask you. Can you say a little bit about what is the difference between history and heritage? <laughs> Oh, and you hit me with the hard ones right now. History and heritage, I think that's important. Heritage has a sort of sort of affect, a sort of feeling to it that creates that creates very deep ties between a particular kinds of historical narrative and the understanding of, of self vis-a-vis like the the collective and the community. Right? So let me just recap that. Heritage is in an affect, it's in an emotion that somehow relates objects or materials or stories or narratives to group identity? I think so. I think so. I think for me, that's really what's at the core of it, right? That it's something that provides the opportunity for attachment, right? The history, opportunity for attachment. You know, history is is often concerned with moving closer to a particular kind of truth, right? Whether or not that's a revisionist or, or these grand narratives or whatever it is, it's just trying to get a little bit more truthful about the past, right? Heritage also often does that, but it may not. It may also just be uh, these narratives that we know and we hold on to and that are learned, right? Just like any other aspect of culture, but that are, uh, that become central to how we relate to others in our community, right? The things that tie us together as a community. And like it's our truth. Yeah, it's our truth, right? I think that I think that's a good way of thinking about it, and and that's why oh, I think heritage is so political. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you talk about like putting forward the narrative that that people in Teosuko want to put forward. You've already talked about the reasons why they want to put that story forward. It's access to various resources, right? To government resources or to tourism resources, or I'm sure there are still ongoing conflicts within the community, as there are within every community. You must be getting multiple stories in the oral history, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's also not even just access to sort of financial or structural resources, but also the right to self-representation. Like, who am I as an archaeologist to come in and decide, okay, this is what we see at this happening at this site. This is going to be the historical narrative, and that's what your history is going to be. And hopefully you accept that or you don't. That's fine. That's your loss. But I know what the truth was because I was the archaeologist who laid it out. That, that for me is just a kind of an unacceptable position to take, right? And so I think in this space, in a space that is overwhelmingly saturated with other people telling Maya people what their history is, this is an opportunity for 
Maya folks in this particular town, right? It's, it's very particular to this town. Maybe it has roots in a, or links in other areas close to it, but you know, it is a specific history. But it, it's an opportunity for for those folks to say, "That's fine. The ancient Maya might be what you link yourself to, and that's great. And we're glad you have that connection." But we link ourselves to the Caswar. We link ourselves to post-war resettlement, or we link ourselves to this, and that's what we're going to present to the world as who we are, as Teosukainus are. And I think that's so important. And that might then come with opportunities for increased resource access, right? But that's not really necessarily the end goal, right? The end goal is to be like, no, I am a person at the table in the dictation of the narration of my own history, right? And I think, at least in my experience there, that's been something that, that has been impressed upon me. Everything that you do stays here. Everything that you do as an archaeologist, as an anthropologist, we want a copy of it. We want to be at the forefront of that conversation. We want to be directing what it might look like. And not in the sort of, you know, puppet strings way, but in the let's talk together about what we both find mutually interesting and let's push that forward. And, and for a lot of folks in Teosuko, that's been about presenting Teosuko as a very specific kind of place that isn't all of these other uh, ways of thinking about Maya identity that, um, that have been proliferated by Maya folks, but also and more commonly by uh, researchers and tourism agencies and things in, the, in this particular space. So... God, we're out of time. Can you say a little bit more about how you do see your position then? As what kind of claims can you make as the archaeologist? I think my position is one that helps bring, you know, new ways of thinking about a familiar history to the fore so that folks can actually uh, think like, oh, okay, we didn't realize that was an available tool to us to explore this thing. That's really cool. Let's do it, right? And I think that's been a space where I can sort of interject and say, I know something about that if it would be of use. Do you want to hear about that more? Or do you not want to hear about it more? And most of the time it's, yes, we want to hear about it more. Sometimes it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, that's fine. That also works out well. But, you know, I think a lot of people who are interested in doing community work are really worried that somehow their authority is going to be diminished or somehow they're going to have to let go of that sort of expertise. And I actually think that through working so closely with the community, the sorts of expertise and authority that I may have you know, engendered for myself are actually stronger in many ways because it's like, no, I, I'm, I'm not just making decisions on my own, but these are mutually agreed upon positions and, and they've gone through rigorous processes of negotiation <laughs> among everyone, right? And I, I don't know, I think it'll continue to morph and it has to be flexible and fluid, but, but it's a position that, that I think is stronger because of the kinds of, negotiation that have had to, to, to occur, as you said, across so many sites and, and people. Well, I have so many more questions I want to ask you, but thank you so much for coming on the show. You've definitely given me some new tools to think with. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That was it, me and Tiffany Kane. Today's episode was produced by me, Ian Pollock, with help from the other familiar strangers, Julia Brown, Simon Theobald, and Jody Lee Tremboth. Our executive producers are Deanna Cato and Matthew Fung. 
Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And please leave us a rating or a review. Let us know what you liked, didn't like. It helps people find the show, and it helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Also, we'll be launching the Familiar Strange chat group on Facebook very soon, so you can keep the conversation going after the podcast is finished. We're really excited about growing forward as a community with you this year. So keep an eye on our Facebook page and don't miss the launch. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe, and our friends at The Dirt Podcast who lent me their microphones to record this episode with. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>